Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast uh, here from New Zealand and the United States. I'm joined by both Branko. How you doing? Great, Kyle. How are you? Yeah, I exist. And Philip. Hey, kia ora, everyone. Good to be back. And less, less covid than last time, so my voice is hopefully 20% nicer than it was last week. Great. Nice. Fantastic. Look, we're all um, on top of our games, uh, and we're starting it off with uh, the by-election, which, well, like the results basically came in. They said preliminary results uh, with full results on the 21st of December, but the margins are clear enough uh, that we know uh, that in Hamilton West, the national candidate, Tama Pataka, uh, took the uh, seat. Um, this all, of course, on the back of the furor um, with Gaurav Sharma uh, being ejected from the Labour Party um, and then choosing to trigger the by-election instead of seeing out his term. Um yeah, I, I don't think either party took it super seriously. Um, the Labour candidate was a union candidate, so you can tell that they didn't really care about it. Um, otherwise, they would have put up, you know, someone from uh, like the media um, or a Labour Party staffer or something. Um, and the national candidate... Uh, a couple of times was in the media as being at odds with national party um, lines uh, and policy. So yeah, pretty interesting um, occurrence event, but probably doesn't tell us anything about the state of New Zealand politics. Uh, you've been following it though, Philip. What uh, has your take been? Yeah, not so different. Um, I thought, uh, yeah, like extremely low turnout is probably the only kind of mainstream and interesting take from this um violation that seemed like it was going to happen since it started like since early votes opened the turnout was even lower than the Tauranga by-election like a by-elections are always notoriously low turnout you never get the kind of turnout you'd get even close to in a general election uh b early voting seems to be reasonably representative these days of what you're get going to get as a final representative tally of votes so it was always obvious that people didn't really care about this by-election, which is interesting because like there hasn't been much media attention on it, but as a seat, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of conform with the, the idea that it's this perfect representative bellwether as people seem to be trying to push it, but it, they always try it, something, but it is reasonably like it's, it's, it's much closer than Tauranga was, right? If you, if you thought Tauranga was a legitimate by-election that meant something, why would you not care more about this election where the, you know, Labour has done better traditionally in the past. Um, so that was interesting. Like lower lower turnout than a, a local government election. That is that is quite a bad kind of indication, right? Um, maybe it's near the end of the year, maybe coming up to Christmas, people can't be bothered. Kind of uh, COVID has worn people down, this new uh, new wave that's out in force. So, you know, there's, there's reasons for it maybe. But uh, Greens didn't run a candidate. That's important to kind of foreground that should have been more uh, electorate votes for Labour, and they didn't do well. Like, they did not turn out the kind of numbers they needed to get even close. Um, it was an easy win for Nats, which was predictable, but Godov Sharma did a bit better than I would have expected. I thought he would get, like, a few percent. He got 8%, but 
on preliminaries. So better than I would have anticipated. Maybe he's got some some kind of family and friends that that voted for him, like on these well, numbers. He was the MP. Like he has yeah. been the front-facing like Labour electorate um, kind of data point um, contact. But there's so, this interesting. So people kind of, would have helped while he's been in there. Yeah, but there's this interesting kind of spectrum between do people just vote for the name of a party or do they actually vote for the individual? And that's an interesting point to bring in is that if uh, if an ex MP who's only been in for one term, remember he hasn't been around for a generation. He's only recently become the actual MP for the area, and he carried eight yeah. percent, despite what seemed like pretty consistently negative coverage from all the nation's media. That's not nothing, right? So. Maybe there's something to the idea that local MPs actually do something. I think that's been my probably my major takeaway um, is electorate MPs in 23 um, probably need to be somewhat at odds with their party. They need to be there representing their community um, and not tying it back to a um, kind of a Wellington uh, central party machine um and the way that you know both labor and national have uh consistently uh done um relying on kind of their party branding um and especially via uh key and ardern to get those votes out there's always going to be of course some value in that for these parties um but if we're seeing a kind of anti-authority turn uh which i'd argue we, we genuinely are um, and not to the extent that, like, we have to all be worried about um, Voices for Freedom and other conspiracy theorists, like, running rampant. They got, like, such a tiny amount of votes uh, in this election as well, as they constantly do. But we need people who go to the, their electorates, are there to stand for their electorate and fight Party Central um, and and let their communities know, I'm willing to go to Wellington um, and and not toe the line um, of my Labour or National paymasters or, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, that would be, you know, people often try and, as you say, uh, make a, a narrative, um, whether it's, oh, this is a bellwether, this is like a referendum on the government, um, all that's kind of bullshit. Um, I disagree with... They're kind of trying to force that narrative on in, in light of low evidence. But given what I've been seeing in um, in coverage um, and political trends, both internationally and here in New Zealand, um, I, I genuinely think you can make claims about who people are voting for um, or who they're likely to vote for um, as individuals. Um and yeah, it'll be interesting to see if any of the party centrals picked it up or if they just keep uh, polling weird uh, issues um, and trying to run on their record um, or against uh, Labour's record in the case of National. I mean, elections are always the, the best polls that you can get um, because that's ultimately what polls are, are trying to simulate uh, is election results. And I mean, I, I do think that... that the the broader trends that we're seeing in New Zealand politics are kind of reflected in this and what Phil's saying. One, the, the Labour's uh, loss, I think, reflects something that you can see in just basic, uh, in, in, in just 
what New Zealand is like right now. Just people are not happy with the government. There's a variety of problems that the government's not really stepping up to solve. Um, they don't, they've lost a tremendous amount of faith in Labour. That's reflected in both the uh, polling for the the, the coming election, uh, but it's also reflected in a variety of, of public opinion polling about how people feel about the country, how they feel about the economy. So that's not totally surprising. I think that the uh, low turnout as well, I think, reflects something else that um, we've been seeing kind of springing up in different forms over the past few years, which is uh, a growing political disillusionment. You know, um, I mean, that was arguably reaching a, a, a pretty bad level before Labour came in. Jacinda Ardern, the kind of uh, face that she presented to the public, I think briefly disabused people of that notion. Um, but of course, we've had now, you know, uh, five years of, of Ardern in power and what that actually looks like in reality. And it turns out actually looks not that much different from, you know, John Key. And, uh, and and the Labour Party before that. So um, uh, we've talked a lot about how failing to address all these issues, you're going to eventually get people becoming once again disillusioned with politics and, and saying, well, you know, no one here is speaking for me, standing up for me, talking about the, the things that are important to my life. Um, and you're going to see them become disengaged from politics. And I think this, this to some extent, uh, probably does reflect that. Yeah, I said very early on, um after uh, the 2020 election, I expect there to be some backbench dissatisfaction within Labour. It hasn't really panned out in the exact way I'd hoped it would. I, I was hoping to see some people who are more connected to their communities um, actually taking Labour to task and saying, we we need to do more here because my electorate is telling me we're, we're not serving them. Um, but it turns out that they're all cowards and the only one we get is a narcissist. Um so if there are any backbench Labour MPs, now's your time to shine. Like, literally just represent your communities. You do not have to toe the party line, you know? Like, just forefront it with a, we're still here for Labour. There's still unity among the party, but we need to do more. Um, it doesn't have to be this huge blow-up. Uh, and it's it's really been a missed opportunity by Labour to live up to their big tent uh, claims, um, and it's and it's immensely damaging. It's the fact that they haven't had a variety of viewpoints with the biggest majority uh, under an MMP uh, system that New Zealand has ever had is an indictment. Like you can't you can't say we're big tent, uh, everyone toe the line, um, or literally get kicked out of the party. Um, yeah, and this isn't, yeah, totally agree. And like this obviously isn't meant to be read as an endorsement of the specific uh, criticisms that uh, Gaurav Sharma had. This is like a broader take about having a, a huge influx of new MPs with different experiences, different backgrounds, different ideologies at different points on the kind of, yeah, as Carl says, kind of big tent, capital L, labor scale. Um, some of whom have like very different uh, opinions and backgrounds to some of the others. Like, uh, yeah, Labour ran like a seemingly pretty kind of staunch unionist who has, you know, in touch with the small business community, but reasonably kind of classical Labour candidate. And as Kyle was very uh, sarcastically saying, like that maybe shows that it wasn't the kind of, um, it wasn't uh, an election that Jacinda and Grant and the kitchen table kind of Labour Central were really throwing a lot of weight behind. They weren't parachuting in someone who they 
really, really wanted. <laughs> yeah, this is someone um, that the, probably the Hamilton West wanted, person. right? Yeah, exactly. There's someone that the that, um an expression the Hamilton below, office wanted, as to yeah, above. yeah, and, exactly. and it's really indicative what their membership is asking them to do and who they're putting forward compared to what's happening in Wellington. And look, we're not in Hamilton West. We don't know. We I didn't go to any of uh, any of their speeches from any of the candidates, right? So it it would be interesting to hear. Uh, from close up if they ran campaigns differently or if there was anything kind of differentiating the way those different candidates were campaigning um but from afar it just kind of it looked like a two-horse race between uh georgie and tama the uh labor candidate and the national candidate and i always thought it was nationals to lose and it seemed like that's basically what happened like turnout was extremely low the only people who turned out probably vote in every election all 70 years that they've been alive and they're all probably the most conservative people who live in Hamilton West um but despite that Labour Labour Central and Labour in Hamilton can't take this as any kind of um it 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 wasn't close right this is really bad for a an electorate that should be uh you should be getting higher than this in an electorate just turn people Um, out they could have literally just turned out uh 10 more and maybe won it Look, even if all of Godov's uh, voters had voted for Labour, even and I don't think that's by any means a given, um, that would have been high thirties, and that's just not that's not good enough for a, even a by-election where it's you know there's the anti-government sentiment, you're not polling great, the turnout's down. You should be that should be kind of a bare minimum without the Greens. Like that's that's really concerning, I think, for them. So there's a machine problem as well as a uh, a polling problem, but. Just very quickly to like pick up on something you were saying earlier, the fringe parties did extremely badly, right? So uh, Outdoors and Freedom Party, the uh, Vision, um, I think New Conservatives ran a candidate. There were a few of them, as usual, they split the split the vote, but none of them got any kind of serious number of votes. They were like, you know, double digits votes, just pathetic, like nothing, back to what you'd expect, um, which I think is important to note because there was this narrative in the Tauranga by-election that this is this thing now that we have to watch out for. Um, which we said at the time, probably not the case. Uh, Sue Gray like ran a very good campaign, very good kind of uh, an actually Big Ten anti-establishment kind of campaign from this insane, you know, anti-fact, uh, anti-evidence kind of perspective and did really well and got over 5% and that scared a lot of people. Um, but this probably shows that that was a one-off. Um, I think, if you know, Sue Gray was busy trying to make sure a baby died in the last month. So if she couldn't run, turns out you can't you can't replicate that. Well, going from a, uh, a crisis in the Labour Party to a, uh, a crisis in Auckland City, uh, uh, we also have now uh, Auckland Mayor, newly minted Auckland Mayor, Wayne Brown, uh, pushing to uh, to deal with a huge budget hole uh, in, in Auckland's budget by basically, what else? What possibly else could you do? Selling off a bunch of um, uh, assets and cutting back on services uh, because it would be a shame to, to, to raise rates really high. Um, but of course, making making it so parents can't send their kids to childcare, that's not that big of a deal. No one will feel that. Um, I mean, basically, the, the proposal that, that Brown has put forward is to, I think it's, it's something like a $270 million budget hole um, which is quite a lot uh, for Auckland. Um, and uh, I mean, this is partly, uh, it has to be said that the, the fact that this is even happening is partly a, a result of, again, the Labour government's failings, which, you know, we talked about that in the context of this 
Hamilton West election, but also um, in in this case, I mean, it, it's the fact that now the Reserve Bank is is dealing with the cost of living crisis by uh, raising interest rates that is making basically everything more expensive. Servicing debt is way more expensive. So now Auckland is, is tipped to have a way bigger um, uh, deficit than people thought. And so, you know, you get a neoliberal a, a right-wing property developer in power. What is he going to do? He's going to uh, try and do the stuff that he would have wanted to do anyway. But now there's a, 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 a an excuse. He has a, a crisis he can point to to justify doing this thing that he would have tried to do anyway. Um, uh, so, I mean, cutting back on, on childcare services is one thing that he's proposed. The big one that's really taken uh, most of the headlines, uh, deservedly, um, is that he wants to to sell off Auckland's 18% uh, stake, uh, the, the council's 18% uh, stake in the, uh, in the airport. Um, which has unsurprisingly uh, uh, caused a lot of uh, unhappiness uh, in the city. Um, we'll have to see if it, if it goes through. But uh, I don't know what, what was your guys' uh, take on seeing these uh, the, the, these big headlines and, and potentially pretty game changing um, uh, uh, events in Auckland. It's stupid shit. Like, you know, we've seen this play out uh, through a way. We've seen it. It's classic austerity stuff. Like, um, and, you know, for as per usual, um, there's this media narrative, which is trying to normalize it, trying to make it sound like it's something that just has to happen. Um, there's been lots of pushback from civil society around this, uh, which has been made a lot easier by Brown and uh, his strategists just being like, just fucking dumb, uh, honestly, with this childcare stuff. Um, the only way it makes like strategic sense if it, if it's like a, an opening gambit to say, oh, okay, we're not doing, we're not getting rid of childcare. We're just selling the airport now. Um, you know, a classic kind of John yeah. Key one-two um, alongside Stephen Joyce, but none of it makes sense. For, like, for don't tell us context. It, no, it doesn't make sense. I mean, for a little bit of context. Uh... New Zealand, I think, has now, or at least the, the, the Ministry of Social Development determined that New Zealand has the, the least affordable childcare in the developed world. I think it's something like 35% of New Zealand's income goes towards paying for it. Uh, uh, in Auckland, of course, it's particularly expensive because everything in Auckland is way more expensive than everywhere else. Uh, and that's saying something because things are expensive everywhere else. Uh, and I think the latest thing that I saw was that uh, the, latest, the latest headline was that it's going to save a whopping $1 million if they basically uh, make it so that, you know, parents are now having to, like, rush around and, and, and just about find something. clears that bit. That's, that's, <laughs> that's less yeah. than one two hundred. That could pay for um, yeah. Matthew Hurden's services for nine or ten months. It, that's a pretty good, um, pretty good no, shout out. It'd be more like a year and a half. But uh, yeah, I think that's another like, yeah. There's a few different kind of points I wanted to, yeah. I definitely wanted to say what what Carl said, and that I think it's probably a trial balloon. Like they're going to drop a few kind of attempts at like, what if we didn't pay for this? What if we didn't pay for this? And see what they get the least pushback on. Yeah. Um, which isn't a reason not to push back. That's a reason to push back on the things that you value because it means yeah. that they probably won't follow through if there's enough civil no, um, yeah. pushback on, on specific things. They're going to cut some stuff because they're right wing and that's what you get. Less well, they're going to sell it to their mates. Like, absolutely. And I think um, probably what it's going to be is the port. Um, and that's why we haven't seen it yet. 
like that has not been in the conversation yet. Why is that? And like during the election period, uh, everyone was talking about the port. Uh, now suddenly, um, when we're talking about selling assets, it's just a whole bunch of bizarre shit that was never even considered. Um, this is heading to a because- port sale um, or at least partial sale of that. And I'd be very, very surprised um, if we don't see uh, both like a, a a very visible step back um, from Brown and his cheerleaders uh, and then a media consolidation um, and probably like a Labour central consolidation around uh, the port sale as well. Um, where they, oh, look, he can listen to reason. Um, oh, this always needed to go. Um, it never made sense to have it here. Uh, and look, we can put some development on the waterfront now. Uh, that's actually good for community. Uh, and don't you want houses? Well, maybe it's maybe it started already. There was an article that came out that even um, Simon Wilson has been pretty positive about. I think it only came out yesterday. Um, that was about uh, Wayne Brown and... Michael Wood, the the transport minister, and uh, you know Wellington and Auckland are talking to each other. What a positive yeah. uh, development! Oh, absolutely. Which is, you know, this is all kayfabe. He only just got voted in. He hasn't done anything yet. Like the the idea that there's been this irreparable breakdown of communications between uh, Labour Party stalwart Phil Goffmere and Wayne Brown, who's done nothing so far, uh, and the Labour Party government with a historic MMP majority. Is, is ridiculous like of, of course you'd construct that as a, as a pr line but it's it's very funny that it's so easy to kind of well, uh buy into this shit right and then the, the the historic kind of um agreement that they come to is to have an agreement it's very like labor party plan to have a plan stuff that in general the media doesn't love but in this situation oh it's wonderful i mean we'll have to see what what ends up happening because we we can't say that at this point but i mean as far as the what's proposed which is the the Auckland Airport share sale. I mean, it's worth noting two things. I think one is that this was already uh, put on the shopping block before Brown was elected. So, so this was already being floated before. So, before this was this this crisis, you know, this fiscal crisis supposedly uh, uh, ever got to the point that it is now, they were already floating this. So, I, I want so to make a distinction some... between airport and the port for the record. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So number one, number two, uh, yeah, I'm talking about the airport. This was this is already some of the shares were already floated before. Uh, number two, I mean, in terms of uh, just if this is an actual attempt to plug the budget hole in Auckland, does it actually make sense? I mean, it reminds me of this. This is the same case that John Key made when he did his asset sales, um, and the idea was, you know, they they would show, oh, look at these lump sums that we're going to get for for selling this, these one off lump sums. And of course, I mean, sure, they would sound impressive, but then when you uh, put them against the actual returns that you got from having these as assets year after year, um, of course, the lump sum you get is completely dwarfed. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, if if this was what your financial manager was advising you, you know, to, to, to use the household budget metaphor that that every hack loves to use and 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 inappropriately misuse uh often uh let, let me use that one if, if your financial manager was telling you you know sell off this investment you have um because look at look at the amount of money you're gonna get and this one point don't worry about the amount of money you're getting for it uh even if it's smaller year after year you'd be like you're an idiot why am i yeah. going to you to, to to get financial advice so it doesn't really make a, a whole lot of sense i mean I mean, Bernard Hickey pointed this out, which is that, 
you know the the uh, returns that the that the shares were, were were making were actually quite decent up until COVID, um, and you know with with things opening up all over the world and New Zealand certainly, um, that's the the it's hard to imagine that the airport is not going to bounce back and 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 you know once again. I mean they they already I think last I saw they upped their 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 forecasts of profitability. You know I think it was like fifty to hundred million to now it's like a hundred hundred and fifty million. So you know I mean look sure. Uh, the, you know, people will say say things when they're trying to uh, uh, make their business look better than it is, of course. But uh, I think that is significant. Um, that does suggest that they expect that, that even if it's not going to be that exact sum uh, in terms of the, the the profit they make, it does suggest that they're going to um, they they see things bouncing back for them in terms of, of world travel and tourism. So it, it, yeah, to me, this just reads as a completely ideological move that is not at all related to concrete reality to, and, and, and sensible money management. It's, a, it's the thing that we always see. It's the right using a crisis, a disaster to push a neoliberal agenda. Yeah. And uh, one of your hundred listeners, go back and listen to Carl's interview with Ed Miller uh, from First Union talking about the asset sales of the Gen Taylors uh, that John Key did to get some specifics on that. But it was, it was a really interesting uh, interview and Ed had some uh, good specific takes about the under evaluation that you get when you sell public assets into private partnership into private ownership, right? This is what you get. So uh, Bill English at the time repeatedly said uh, five to seven billion off the top of my head was the kind of valuation that he expected to get for selling 49% of a bunch of these uh, electricity gen tailors, generators and retailers. And we didn't get the minimum. We didn't get the bottom end of what he was giving us as the kind of uh this is the amount we're going to get into public coffers so even when it comes to short-term return on investment you're not you're very unlikely to get that and even over time this is the worst as bronco's saying this is not a good time to be selling this asset this asset is uh very you know historically is probably at the lowest value point it's ever going to be at it's it's already starting to go up it's not going to go down. Look at the way that we've, uh, we being the New Zealand uh, government, I'm not uh, giving myself any responsibility. Look at the way the fucking second, Philip. Look, look, look at how Trump has done this before. <laughs> look at the way that we, being uh, the Labour government, have uh, changed uh, immigration settings and travel settings and uh, lockdown restrictions and all this stuff. It's only going to go up from here, most likely, right? And around the world, that, that seems to be the trajectory. We're going to be... Uh, immigrating and immigrating sick people but people nonetheless on planes therefore the value of the, the airport is only going to increase from here it's at it's at a low point this is the dumbest possible pla place to be uh selling a public a public investment into, into private hands and also there are articles coming out now about who funded wayne brown's mayoral campaign and a lot of that is uh graham hart was a big investor you know property investors people who would buy shares in a big safe public asset being sell sold into private hands so this is just you know transparently a scam this is the there's multiple ways so there's both quantitative and qualitative like very safe reasons that even establishment media sources should be treating this with intense skepticism mm -hmm. and it's wild to me that that hasn't been kind of foregrounded in these in these articles I, I saw a national radio piece about this 
Um, and they quoted, they had one quote from an expert and it was, uh, it was someone from like an, an investment firm. It was an economist from an investment firm. He was like, well, yeah, you know, the fact that they need money, this probably, unfortunately does make a lot of sense. And it's like, well, yeah, you probably would think that because you're you probably, probably just chopping at the bit to, to be the first to, to get in there once it's sold. So, yeah, I mean, as far as, first of all, um, you know, again, to, to mention Hickey, I mean, Bernard Hickey quite sensibly, I thought, proposed, hey, if you're going to sell something, why not sell off a bunch of golf courses? Um, you know, which are... Which is well, also and, like something I don't want us to do. Yeah, exactly. Which, which are reserved for, you know, a, a particular slice of society. Um, uh, completely unproductive. Um, it, I just vacant land sitting around while Auckland is in a horrific housing crisis, um, you know, with families sleeping in vans and cars. Uh, no one would miss it except, except conveniently the, the people, the kind of people who, who uh, donated to Wayne Brown's campaign and probably Wayne Brown himself. I, I imagine he's an avid golfer. Um, I mean, in terms of the, the communication between the Labour government and, and, and the Auckland government, I mean, uh, Here's my question. If there's going to be communication, these, these guys are going to be working together. Uh, why doesn't the central government do something to, to bail out Auckland? I mean, you know, as we said, sure, okay, uh, some of this has to do with, with long-standing fiscal issues, but a lot of this is to do with recent events, recent world upturning events that really have nothing to do with with. Auckland and how it's managed its money and how, what it's done and what it hasn't. It has to do with, with these these uh, trends that are roiling the the globe. You know, inflation going up, the price of fuel, the price of food going up, necessitating the rise of interest rates, so on and so forth. Uh, if we acknowledge that, and I think everyone more or less does acknowledge that, that is a big part of why this this hole is bigger than expected. Then surely the Labour government has a responsibility to to before. Brown has an excuse to do all this terrible stuff to to step in and uh, and actually you know say hey you know what you don't have to do this because we're going to plug this hole for you, um, and by the way that can easily be done because again so many firms so many people have made so much money over the past few years of the pandemic, it is completely insane that New Zealand continues to refuse to to uh, pass a windfall profits tax which has been done in a bunch of countries all over the world it's it's. Take out ideology, left and right, class politics. Take all that out. It, th that's just a sensible fiscal move in the, in this situation. But they refuse to. And so, I mean, you know, look, Wayne Brown, terrible. Obviously, you know, this is more or less what anyone could have expected him to do uh, when he was campaigning, when he won uh, the, the mayoralty. But we should not let, let the, the, the Labour government off the hook. Uh, I'm sorry, but they uh, if, if this goes through... And they fail to to prevent it. Um, that's that's on them as well. They can't just say, "Oh, well, this is not our responsibility. We don't deal with with with, with local issues." That's ridiculous. Waiting I mean, for Auckland the, big, is the um, biggest city in the country is a third of the goddamn population. Waiting for the big curtain pull where um, the New Zealand government buys up all these assets. Wow. Well, that that would be well if, if the. Uh, if the the other big story of this week is anything to go by, I don't think that's going to happen. And if it does happen, I think the Labour government will quickly uh, run away from it. Uh, I mean, I don't, if we're ready to move on to the to I guess the biggest story that that we've had, but uh, at least uh, from the point we're recording, the 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 proverbial uh, political discourse in New Zealand has been dominated by the story of, of three waters. and the Labour government's um, uh, walk back. Some say walk back. Some would say. Craven cowardice, 
in the face of criticism of a uh, entrenchment issue. Which, Philip, do you want to give us uh, a summary of uh, the, the, the issue there and, and what ended up happening? Yeah, look, I think it depends how fine-grained you want to get. A lot of um, kind of legal nerds have been really taking this opportunity to have the, you know, once in a decade time where their skill set makes sense. <laughs> Slash, uh, yeah, uh, circle jerk, depending on how, again, how charitable you want to be to legal nerds. But I guess in the um, in the micro, basically what happened was uh, the Greens put up an SOP to change the bill that was being passed to have an entrenchment clause for one specific part of three waters that was public ownership of uh, supply of water or, you know, continued public ownership of supply of water so that to change that part of the legislation, you would have needed 60% of a future parliament uh, votes to change it as opposed to the 50% plus one votes that is regularly the case in New Zealand. Um, and because we don't have an upper house or a kind of unified written constitution, you know, there's quite a quite a big kind of like populist element to this philosophically. Um, so it's interesting. They pushed for that. Um, a bunch of legal nerds kind of complained about, oh, actually, the you know, that that I think technically correctly uh, does change the structure of our constitution in New Zealand because entrenching things has been by convention kept for things like electoral law, uh, you know, preventing kind of gerrymandering, stuff like that. That's quite kind of quote unquote procedural. So that's, there is an important distinction there about what's a kind of legitimate playground for parliamentary debate and what's, what's ideological and what's procedural and which I, I, you know, as, as someone who thinks that a lot of the structure of uh, politics is confected in that way, I, I would break down that dichotomy and say that a lot of that is kind of made up um but it's interesting at least that that was something that the greens pushed and stuck with to you know to give them some credit that's that's quite a gutsy kind of move mm. and the labor party had some kind of internal turmoil and initially voted for it under urgency that's important and hasn't been uh stressed enough uh and then went back and voted against it when they realized that probably this was going to cause more trouble than it was worth so that's a kind of micro conversation. And the macro conversation is, is that a constitutional issue? I would say yes. Most like legal scholars seem to say yes. And then outside that, the more interesting conversation I would say is, is it justified or useful to have elements in your constitution that go outside the very kind of like procedural framework bullshit that you get in the current New Zealand kind of like entrenched legal clauses? So if you look at most constitutional conversations, quote unquote, that we talk about in the last like 20, 30 years, even of um, constitutional debate around the world, most of the interesting ones have been in South America because of the speed of turmoil in that continent. Um, but even in Europe, there have been a few kind of suggestions of what should be in a constitution, what could be in a constitution, what does a good society look like? What does a good life look like? We even started this under John Key. We had a quote unquote constitutional conversation based on an agreement with the Maori party in their, I think his first term, um, where they traveled around the country and had little kind of meetups with different groups and went, uh, what should the kind of constitutional framework of New Zealand look like? And the kind of stuff that came out of that was substantive, a lot of that. Like, that's that's the kind of way that I would expect to get to a point where you go, one thing that we value as a country is public ownership of water, whatever format that looks like, right? And so I think, you know, the outcome of that would make a lot of sense to have this kind of 
like economically substantive outcome where you go public ownership of water is something we value as a society, which we do, you know, polls massively point to that being the case. So treat it like that, like entrench it, say that it's something that's constitutional and not just something that act plus national could say, we're going to sell that to our mate Graham Hart for 20 bucks. <laughs> well, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, Part of the reason why, I mean, it was set at 60%, and usually the, the threshold is 75%, right? And part of, the, part of the reason why it was lower, it was an acknowledgement of the fact that this is not usually considered a constitutional issue. So it was it was, a, it was set at a lower threshold than, than normal, right? That, that was the idea for it. But the yeah. only reason, the only reason it was at a, at a lower threshold is because 60% is what the Greens and that, and the Greens and Labour have together. It right. was a purely political, pragmatic decision. Like, if the Greens... And Labour had 65% of the vote, it would have been set at 65. That wasn't, you know, it's an arbitrary number based on the kind of sliding scale of where each party is set. So, like, you know, cast your mind back to a Labour National, a Labour Act government. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. My, uh, my hey, Labour Act government coming today. in 2023, my man. <laughs> Kyle's constant preference. Uh, imagine, imagine a National Act government that had 60% of the vote. The example that the right keep using is three strikes was very popular in terms of polling at the time, right? So if they said, we're going to entrench this as a matter of constitutional uh, background. So you would need- Which is insane, 60%. by the way. It's insane to make that like, hey, this is one of the things that's really frustrated me about this whole conversation. Like, no, the national right can do whatever they want. No, that's not how this works. As Philip was saying, like there is a, like a precedent- for public services um, like water to be included as constitutional items. Like, no one's going to do this for some shitty piece of crime stuff. It, it's well, so much... Yeah. I mean, they probably... The, the, idea, the idea is, right, it would, it would spark a, a tit-for-tat, uh, uh, just basically willy-nilly just entrenching everything because, okay, well, if you have a political priority that that you really want to make sure the other, the next government can't repeal... Okay, we're gonna we're gonna also do this because you you went outside the the usual kind of standards and structures for what's considered appropriate for this and, and what isn't. So now we're gonna do the same, which I understand on you know that that makes sense on a certain level. However, I do think, as you guys are saying, that the the who controls and owns the water and and other natural resources of New Zealand, which is literally the basis of uh, our prosperity as a country, uh, literally the basis of our entire society. Look, sorry, Franco, sorry about it. Does not involve, it does not exist in a physical space. Um, <laughs> you know, like the, the borders of our nation are entirely uh, in the brainosphere. Um, it's all it's all imaginary, uh, and <laughs> there is no relationship between the physical land uh, and the country. So, no, no, the the, the meat that you eat. Uh, from the supermarket, it just appears there by by magic every uh, every morning, and uh, same with all the produce and everything. No, I mean, you know, this stuff is is hugely critical to to uh, people's lives, and so I think, sure, okay, national could try and make the same case about crime and and three strikes, but I mean, let's be honest, uh, the the you know, I think everyone. Uh, at heart would recognize that that's uh, far more spurious than, than the idea of protecting water from being, you know, privatizing yeah. everyone's, uh, the cost that people pay for these things going up. I mean, also, I should say that suddenly national cares a great deal about, you know, the constitution and everything. I'm sorry, back when they uh, changed the law so that the uh, GCSB, a foreign spy service, was basically able to spy on New Zealanders, 
that got pushback from all the same people, you know, the law society and, and other other legal minds uh, who are who are complaining about this now. Uh, National did not give a shit. Uh, I don't think really the, the the other parties really put up that much of a, a fight either. We just decided, no, you know what, this is um, this is too important. We're just going to ignore all the constitutional objections and just kind of barrel through with this I mean, anyway. Just um, now, most look, constitutional objections with... to anything. That this is what happens. Right. Like, right. This is, there's I, a, I, an opportunity I, to I, score I, political points here, um, and right. that is why it is an issue right now. Yeah. Look, sure. politically. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'll just say I don't agree with obviously what happened with the, the the GCSB bill, obviously. But the the problem there wasn't a bunch of constitutional uh, impropriety and, and a bunch of procedural stuff. The problem there was that they were going to let this uh, 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 spy service that is meant to spy on foreigners um, that is feeding our personal data into a vast database that is being that is available to to for other governments, um, for other governments that do a lot of bad things around the world um, and meddle in other countries' uh, politics, they're going to let that happen. That was the problem. Uh, the constitutional element of it was is, is a further sign of the fact that it was inappropriate, but it it, it wasn't the, the main crux of the question. And I would say in this case, you know, is the, are there legitimate concerns about, you know, overstepping the bounds of what's constitutionally appropriate and what isn't sure there are but i would say that if we actually had a proper debate and discussion about this um i think people would probably come to see it. and and if, if more to the point the government made an actual case for this it, is the issue uh, people yeah. would come to exactly and and but as as philip said they didn't do that they just decided to to sneak it in under the cover of night essentially and and you know what look governments do that stuff all the time and if you're going to do that if you're going to uh resort to kind of those kinds of shadowy, undemocratic measures, then you at least have to stick by them. <laughs> you know, you have to either pick the, seriously, you have to either pick the proper democratic route and have an actual public discourse. Um, or if you're going to try and be underhanded, you can't just run away from it in the end because that makes you look even worse. That makes you look both cowardly and dishonest. So they've kind of picked the worst of both worlds. I'm yeah. talking just in the politics of this. They've picked the worst of both worlds. It's like, and like indicative of this Labour government, right? First outright majority, they could pass whatever the fuck they wanted. Like, um, instead, they are passing nothing out in the open, despite having a huge public mandate for a transformative government uh, that, for example, uh, does strict COVID public health measures. Um, they could be doing that, and they have the mandate for that, and they don't have any other political party stopping them. Or they could try and pass the stuff that there's been no conversation about under urgency without having a conversation with the public uh, and then like scuffle backwards into their hole when they get called out on it. It, it, it if nothing else, there's just no political will here. That it's they're just they're a fucking empty shell. It's embarrassing. And I don't want to leave the Greens off the hook here either, because you know, this is their SOP. We could have been having this conversation since April, which is when it was first um, kind of put forward uh, as as a way to protect water assets. And look, let's let's be very very clear: the end goal here is something that we should be very much focused on in New Zealand. It's there's a consistent issue over the last decade or so with the local councils, for example, selling or well, not even selling, giving water rights to big offshore bottling operations. Uh, which are worth billions of dollars. Um, and I don't think that's an understatement. I mean, sorry, an overstatement. 
Um, there's a very strong case to make to the public who already widely agree with you. I think it's like 70% or something um, want to protect water from privatization. Uh, that's even after this furor, even after this beat up about the entire thing. Uh, have this conversation back in April. Greens are now the champion of New Zealand water rights. Fantastic. Look, you're probably going to get this over the line, mate. Instead, they slip it in the back here. They try and pass it under urgency because we didn't have time because the Queen died. Um, get called out for that. And now we've got that was James... a hectic time. That was a crazy uh, time, Carl. Yeah. You have to admit. Uh, I don't give a shit. I, I, um... I was crying for 23 hours a day. <laughs> almost three um, months. And, and then now you've got James Shaw in the media like trying to protect the entrenchment clause instead of like coming outright and saying, we don't care about the entrenchment clause so much as. Um, like he could he could have literally just stepped out and just said, okay, entrenchment clause is gone. Let's have this conversation about privatization of water. Yeah. Um, that is what the Greens stand for. We're trying to find some way to protect that for the New Zealand public. Maybe we overstepped. Total we're totally okay with that. Let's have this conversation now. Um, yeah, the, the and entire... take that into 2023, you're you're golden, mate. Instead, the, the we're just discourse... a total fuck up. No, the entire discourse is about narrow constitutional questions, which, which is let's embarrassing. Be honest, no most Kiwis, no one cares. their eyes roll in the back of their heads when they exactly. hear this. That's, they that's they don't I... care. I mean, yeah, it should be about hey, do we actually want to private? Do we want to keep our, our, our water and other natural resources out of private hands um, and make sure that the benefits flow back to to the actual you know communities that that, that are living among them? I mean, we have to remember that the the asset sales that happened under John Key they happened despite massive public opposition um there was no uh, majority uh, uh, new zealand public in favor of these things and and jockey did it anyway which i think shows the uh, the importance of, of of having some sort of mechanism to well, to prevent this from from happening again and and really goes um to show uh, just the reasons why for this kind of like huge manufacturing of an issue here uh completely at odds with what it's actually about um and what it's looking like as well is you get a whole pe bunch of people internal to Labour, including quite senior MPs, who are using this as a factional opportunity uh, to attack Namahuta. Um, and just, uh, including David Parker, who's, um, you know, meant to be one of the, like, stalwarts, um, although he's, you know, he's fucking walking away now, isn't he? Um, he's just called his retirement. No, um, wait, has he? I, I thought he had. Maybe I... I heard that it sounded like he had, and then he... Oh, okay. It. Funny. Um, we'll leave that in, though, because that's interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, saying how, oh, no one in Cabinet really knew about this, which is just utter trash. Yeah. Like, there is that's no good, way. That's like, yeah, yeah. This but, is like, like, yeah, you can't put this on Nanaya. Like, even if even if she was technically responsible, which I think maybe there's an argument that she was technically responsible for this bill, right, and this bill's communication with with caucus she has an incredible reputation on this exact thing like getting difficult buy-in from parties the media with, will never like, like acknowledge no, us though. this is, the, this is the it's problem. so insane like the way the media has turned from this very narrow constitutional issue to this outright often racist attack on like probably one of the preeminent stateswomen of this labor party She's extremely um, good at what she does, right? It's just that the way she communicates really rubs a lot of journalists the wrong way. So, like, it seems like the way that they've interpreted the way that she communicated stuff has just just left this this huge chink in the in the armor. Like, if based on all the stuff that I've read and all the stuff that I've heard, I think it's probably most likely that she communicated 
what the SOP was to several senior Labour figures, and they misunderstood the the import of that. Like Chris Hipkins definitely didn't know what the fuck was going on. Jacinda definitely didn't know what was going on. Grant definitely didn't know what was going on. But Nanaya did, and she has a impeccable record of communicating this stuff. So who do you believe? Like it's it's quite a difficult. If you are really interested in like the very boring specific politics of it, it is an interesting kind of like. He said, she said situation. Know, but like, I... for example, when, when Chris Hipkins stood up to speak on the three waters under urgency again, right? This is all a matter of hours, not a matter of days, which is the big problem here. Like if you're yeah. a gallery journalist, this is what you should be writing about the overuse of urgency in the last bloody decade. Um, that That's the actual issue. So Chris Hipkins stood up and said, there's nothing in this bill that will surprise anyone as a, as a matter of kind of comforting people. Like, don't worry, don't worry. And he was surprised because he didn't know it was in the bill. There's no more perfect kind of encapsulation of writing, yeah. you know, finalizing the yeah. bill in a matter of like half a day. Who is the day. bad, who is the um, bad politician here? Who is the person not doing the job? It's half a dozen people at the top of cabinet who like to sit around and say, treasury says no. Um, and mm. the, these kind of claims that because, and this is happening in our national media, by the way, this is the political gallery who are making the claims I'm about to mouth. Um, and they barely deserve to be mouthed, but in the um, just to do some analysis of this, I think it needs to be raised because it's it's becoming a constant threat uh, in our political media, which is Nanaya Mahuta is too strong and too powerful for Jacinda Ardern to handle um, because of her connection to the Maori caucus. Uh, and they're fishtailing, fishtailing, dovetailing this with the whole co-governance thing um it's almost entirely racist um there may be a, a half dozen political reporters who just don't know what the fuck they're talking about uh everyone else making this argument is like off their fucking rocker um it's insane well, like you think that Mahuda has more power than grant robertson and jacinda ardern get the fuck out the the entire issue has not really been well reported uh basically the entire time it's 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 been in the in the proverbial discourse. I mean, uh, and this is kind of like it's reached like a height. To be honest, now for the first time, it's, it feels like the discussion about this is like to some extent uh, substantive, because for a long time there was first of all people didn't know what the hell three waters was. <laughs> Second of all, uh, the main objections that you were, you heard was about the the supposed. The, the co-governance aspect, which was kind of um, framed as as like a, a stealth privatization to to iwi, which is which it's not. All that happens is that is that represent, representatives of iwi have um, uh, uh, input, equal representation on the boards. <laughs> What's that? They have input into what happens with water. Well, they they have they have representation on the boards that are, are going to be part of this the, these new state-owned entities that that manage the, um, the 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 water. But but it's not as if it's being handed over to iwi so but but this was this was the way that it was framed um and so the debate was about a bunch of fantastical stuff that wasn't actually happening um and the real stuff i mean you know mike joy uh very famous for criticizing the the key governments for being an economic uh, terrorist yeah yeah famous economic terrorist mike joy uh no he would you know people probably remember him from um he he did that whole thing where he said you know the government's 100 percent pure branding uh, under John Key was a bunch of uh, bullshit, uh, uh, to, to to put it bluntly. bluntly. Um, and he was critical of this because he said, you know, the, the problem with it was that okay, three waters, but it doesn't talk about the 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 source water. It doesn't. It has nothing to say about you know the 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 
fact that this water, when it, when it, when it begins, you know, before it gets to, to the point where we're drinking it and, and using it for the things we use it, it's being contaminated by, you know, nitrate and a whole bunch of um, pollutants. And why, why is it? And, and why is it that this has been completely left out? Well, who's doing that polluting? It's, uh, it's, the, it's the agribusiness sector that happens to have complete immunity from any sort of political check in our system. Um, and that was a really important point. But I mean, I've seen, I think there, there was one article that I've ever seen, like a news hub piece or something that, that quoted Joy's criticism of this. Otherwise it's been completely ignored. And that, that this is, I'm talking about 2021. So this is going back a year, uh, actually over a year, a year and a half. So that I think is really indicative of just how badly uh, this thing has been covered. Um, you know, uh, so there's, there's multiple levels of failure going on here, unfortunately. Um, and, and who's, who's the, the most ill-served? It's, it's the New Zealand public. Because we should be having a conversation about this, uh, a, a wider conversation about the importance of, of safeguarding um, our control, New Zealand control over our resources. But we're not going to have that because now it's it's you know it's it's all been buried under this kind of superfluous uh, uh, stuff about constitutional law and you know supposed privatization to to iwi and yada yada yada. There have been okay. pretty significant issues all along since. Uh, since last year, since before last year, since this was first even mooted as an idea, uh, there have been both kind of grassroots organizations and left-wing groups and right-wing groups, all with different, I thought, reasonably kind of convincing problems with the the structure they were putting forward for this, which is basically, the more, the more I've thought about it, the more critical I've become of the idea that uh, you need to create a new entity to be responsible for spending on water infrastructure separately from government spending on other necessities of life right so like there's stuff that government books have to be responsible for for example welfare spending and superannuation spending those things are like political footballs that are, you know in the classic sense of that on government books but we can't avoid the fact that that's something that we're spending money on whereas it seems like this seems like an, an attempt to create another reserve bank situation where there's this apolitical organization that makes political decisions like how much money should we spend to maintain water infrastructure i can see that the the labor government's ideology would love that to not be a capital p political decision like they don't want every year there to be a debate between labor saying we need to spend three percent more on pipes yeah. and national saying tax cuts like every three years that's i can see why they would hate that because they don't want to make the bold political claims that we need to pay for a quality of life that we can maintain, right? They, they would love to pull that out of the political sphere. And I, I feel like the more that time's gone on, the clearer that's become that that's what they want. Like I, I naively assumed when the recommendations of the kind of working group and the, um, kind of the, the councils they were speaking to and changing the way that they were phrasing and selling their three waters uh, policies and then they adopted a bunch of those recommendations i was like great this looks a lot more practical the way that it's funded looks like it makes sense the people they're talking to looks like probably the right kind of people and i thought okay so i think there was an episode maybe a year ago where we were talking about three waters or six months ago or so where i said oh well if they adopt all of these recommendations probably the the fight against it will start to die down but it hasn't happened because they haven't been selling it in the way that they've been given the opportunity to they're depoliticize it. They're trying to depoliticize it, but ironically, that's the last thing people want. Like people recognize that 
infrastructure is a political topic. Like deciding mm. to commit to your future is a political act. And national, you know, may or may not want us to have poison in our water. Ask them. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, I will say, I mean, I'm I'm open to to being swayed on either side of this, but you know, I to me that there does seem to be benefit to to pushing ahead with this if number one, it's supposed to save we're talking about Wayne Brown privatizing stuff to, you know, supposedly to to, to save money. This is supposed to uh, save the uh, Auckland government a bunch of money because they're no longer having to having to be on a tab to to pay for all these improvements and everything. Um, so that would be that would be a benefit. Number two, if they actually had pushed this, you know, through an actual public discussion, push this um, entrenchment idea through. That would have been great because that means that now it makes it way harder for someone to like Wayne Brown to win the mayoralty and then try and privatize water because suddenly it would all be, you know, under the central government and it'll be protected. But now if it's all centralized and you don't have this provision that that, that entrenches it, well, uh, to me, my worry is that, well, next time there is a, um, you know, a, a, a very right wing government, a, a coalition between national and act that say, you know, does as well as. Uh, Labour and the Greens did in, in, in this last election, well, then I'd be worried that suddenly that it's much more easier for that government to, to privatise this stuff as well. So um, I, know, I guess we'll have to see what happens here. But but um, yeah, without this provision in there, I'm, I, I'm a lot less uh, positive about this whole idea. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. That's been another episode of One of 200. Uh, thanks for joining me, Branko. Yeah, that's okay. You know what? Yeah. It's all right. This time it's okay. Yeah. Maybe next time you'll be in trouble, mate. Yeah, you watch out, Kyle. This one time. <laughs> well, you heard the memories of discontent there, folks. Um, <laughs> tune in next time to find out whether or not uh, I have co-hosts. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode, uh, give it a share. Give it five stars. Uh, let people know that there's some independent uh, left-wing media out there uh, that runs counter to mainstream media narratives. Uh trying to cover as much of New Zealand and international politics as we can week to week. Uh, you can find us on any podcast catcher um, or on Monday nights on NPR, One uh, or Two People's Radio. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams is the lie Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is a lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation, you hate nationalism. You don't hate your